Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. In this one, I speak to Ash Chapman, CEO of Inlumi, the rapidly growing consultancy focused on large-scale technology-enabled transformation for the office of the CFO. Ash has had a hugely successful and diverse career, and one that shows you don't have to follow a set path to achieve success in our industry. Having started out working for a software vendor, Ash moved on to join the boutique consultancy Paragon, where he spent eight successful years before they were acquired by PwC. That jump from small to big gave Ash exposure to a whole world of opportunity and mentorship that helped him accelerate his career. And it's something that we go into detail on in today's conversation. After almost a decade with PwC, Ash started to think about his next challenge and called on his extensive network to test the waters. Before long, the opportunity to set up Inlumi's UK business came up. This was the challenge Ash had been looking for, and he set off to help them launch. 
Fast forward, and Ash is now CEO of Inlumi, a business with over 250 consultants spanning Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. In this conversation, Ash and I talk through the various stages of his career and how they combined to put him in exactly the right place at the right time and with the right skills and experience to enable him to make that jump to CEO. We talk about the key differences between boutique consultancies and big firms and why both actually have a lot to offer. We discuss why when it comes to consulting careers, one size doesn't fit all and why, like Ash, you don't have to follow a fixed path to success. We discuss the power of harnessing your network and Ash's advice if you're thinking of making a career move. And finally, we talk about the Inlumi journey so far, the challenges that come with starting a business in a new country from scratch, and the value that Inlumi have seen in investing in their culture and really focusing on building that from the start as they scale the business. If you are at a career crossroads, maybe you're looking at which way to go next. I know that Ash's advice in this one is going to really help you. So with the intro over, all that is left to say is please enjoy today's conversation with Ash Chapman. Ash, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So very much looking forward to our chat. You have come recommended by two people that I know, both John at Channel 3, former guest and client of ours, and David Lancefield, former guest and friend of mine. So I'm really looking forward to our chat, finding out all about yourself in Illumi. For those, though, who may be haven't come across you before, don't know about Inlumi. Could you give me, for our listeners, just a brief overview of who you are and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so I think for me, the journey started with my main first job, which was a software vendor called Hyperion Solutions at the time. And that ended up being a really formative experience. I mean, I took the job because it was in the same town my girlfriend lived in, not because of any career aspiration or desire or knowledge, but actually it was the one that kind of taught me the most and it introduced me to a world that's shaped a lot of the direction of my career from that point forward. And the reason it did that, I think, was because the role touched a lot of the different functions inside that business. It was very educational. So I learned a lot about how the company was structured, but not uh, a deep amount of knowledge about any one particular area. But what I did come to love was the idea of moving into consulting. And actually, I was given a bit of advice, which was kind of disappointing at the time, but was useful afterwards, which was, it's really hard to move into consulting and learn how to be a consultant, to know the technology and the business subject all at the same time. You kind of need to pick off one at a time. So, And then as luck would have it, again, I didn't feel very lucky at the time, I was made redundant. So it was a US company and there was a bit of a tech market uh, depression at that moment. And uh, I lost that job. I was made redundant. And then uh, when I found a new one, I got it in industry. And then I was able to understand why the customers bought the software from that particular vendor. So I was able to link it back. And then that was where I moved into finance, group finance, and the processes that I've ended up working in consulting. So that kind of gave me the skills and a bit of knowledge of the technology which was the two missing ingredients or two of the three missing ingredients that allowed me to then go and get the next job, the one I was really looking forward to, which is in consulting. And that was with a niche or boutique vendor called Paragon Consulting. So I joined, there was 10 of us and there was uh, 40 plus by the time we were acquired, which was by PwC. So that was the sort of journey to the main part of my career, which is 15 years in consulting and the job that I still love today. So I spent around about eight years or so in Paragon, then 1st of January 2010, we were acquired by PwC. Then I moved into the world of big consulting with a professional services organization. I spent eight years there. 
And then five years ago, I left to start the UK consulting part of Inlumi. Ash, I think a really succinct overview and a lot for us to dig into there. And, and your choice of first employer, I must say, I think that's as good a reason as any. Yes. And I think something, and we're going to explore a number of those those roles and almost sort of what led you to join Inlumi as well as your time here. And maybe we start with with that previous career, because when we caught up ahead of this show, you made the point that actually you couldn't do the job you do today if it wasn't for everything you learned in those earlier roles. And I don't always think people give enough credit to the things they learned before that might have seemed small or inconsequential at the time, but are now really important. So I'd, I'd love to start kind of with that and looking back, actually, what were those you know, key moments or key learnings from that sort of previous career that have really helped you in, in getting to where you are today? I mean, it seems really simple to me now and perhaps, I mean, I couldn't have seen this at all and it wasn't all by design in, in any way. But when I look back at it, it does all slot into place quite simply, which is if there are three main ingredients, which is a lot of the consulting I do is about technology enabled projects to understanding how the technology worked. And most importantly, actually, and that's, it was less important uh, in the early phases of my consulting career, but it's very important now, which is how is a technology company constructed? How are they set up? What are the functions inside? How do they interrelate and operate? So understanding how to navigate that and what the technology did became really important. And then it was, what does the customer actually need? What are their problems? How does it really feel? Can you empathize with what they're trying to achieve? What's hard and what's easy and how consulting companies and technology can help? So then you kind of get the other missing part, which is you've been on the customer side, you know how the vendors are structured and operate for good and for bad. And then the last bit is how do you become a really good consultant and doing it in a small company and then latterly in a large company, you kind of hone and build those skills. So you get you know, some specialization and depth from the smaller one and you get the hone and the polish from the bigger one. I think when you say it like that, it seems seems like a very well thought through <laughs> yes. career path. And if you hadn't said it was just because of a, a prior girlfriend, I should have actually, that's a, an assumption. Was it a prior girlfriend? Is that your wife today? Uh, no, prior girlfriend. Prior girlfriend, fine. But it sounds like a much more logical structure. And I guess actually for anyone listening who wants to build a career in that sort of tech consulting space, you know, if you had your time again, would you still do it the way around you did? Would you actually flip that and go consulting first? Or has that changed as the, you know, as the world's moved on? I think I would always recommend not necessarily the sequence, well, maybe even the sequence in the way I did it. And as, a, as we discussed, it wasn't by design at the time. That was just the flow of how it, how it happened. But I think you can make your career in consulting with missing some of those ingredients, you can do it all in consulting, you can come from industry to consulting, you come from a software vendor to consulting, all of that is definitely possible. But the three ingredients just allow you to understand the different perspectives that come and mix together. And I found it was then easier for me to understand my role as a consultant, how you can add value, um, what all of the different components that make up a project are thinking and need. So for me, it made a difference. It's by no means the only way. Well, I think as this is your story, it's uh, it's good to hear what's worked. And I, jumping a little bit, you mentioned obviously that sort of going to Paragon, and we'll talk about the growth journey, but I'd, I'm keen to touch on that with when we get on to Inlumi, because I know you've had quite a growth journey as a firm. But I, I think that joining a big firm is always an interesting step. So when you were acquired by PwC, because I've spoken to a lot of guests for this show, and there are many people who you know, will start small, and that's what they do forever, or they'll start big, and that's what they'll do forever. Some do make the leap, but 
I've seen less go successfully from a small firm to a big firm. You know, the the culture and the sort of hierarchy that you have in a small firm is naturally less, and that can be quite a shift for people. And I'd love to, I guess, understand how you found that experience because you then obviously had a successful career at PwC, you know, closing in on a decade. So it obviously worked for you. But how was that shift? And maybe we start there with that kind of first year when you've gone from, as I say, Paragon into PwC. It's a really good question. It's quite a big one as well. And there's lots of different components to it. There's also a very simple one, which is, you know, when we were first told that we were being acquired by PwC, you're naturally a bit nervous, but actually all that is really is it's about change. Something big is about to change. It wasn't a change that that you chose. So you selected to join Paragon, a small company, and then you, you were enjoying that experience. And then that world was about to shift. So you become a bit nervous about it. But I remember the founder and owner of Paragon, Richard Wiles, he said, Ash, this, this is going to be really good for you. And to be honest, I just took that at face value. And then for me, it was that's how I perceived it after then that became the mindset, which was, yeah, this is going to be a really good thing. So then I didn't worry too much thereafter. And it was about, right, how to make the best of it. And then when you land inside it, well, the world is big, right? It's a lot more complicated. There's so many moving parts. Before, everyone that worked with us was in the same room. You knew what everyone did. And it was not hard to understand because it was your job as well. And then suddenly you're in PwC and you don't know that anymore and you can't see them all in the same room and it's how do you navigate that but then a couple of things that are true which is you're still a consultant and let's say 80% of your time you're on client site which means you don't actually have to comprehend the world in all its glorious detail on the first day right you can play into it you can take your time to understand this world and how to navigate it the other thing is there's a lot of people there to help and one of the reasons that journey worked really well for the people who worked for Paragon was because the leadership of Paragon were able to keep us together as a group. So we weren't a company within a company at all, but it gave you a little bit of home from which to play yourself in from. So there was like this comfortable bit you knew that was still a lot of what you did day to day on the consulting work. And then you had your time to start comprehending the larger, wider world around you, how it's structured. And it is complicated. And you know, before you had a boss and then you had you're in a matrix organization, by the way, what even is one of those? And all of that is new, but you don't have to figure it out on the first day. So you take your time because there's a core of what you do, which is the same. And you do have, you know, so other parts that quite a big question, a little bit of imposter syndrome. So People do talk slightly differently. It's not like there's a whole new language in PwC versus other companies, for sure. But you sort of think there is because it's a big brand that you've heard of and now you're in this world. But I remember speaking to a, a partner. He was a director at the time and he's now a, now a partner. And I said to him, oh, we've, we've all got quite a lot to learn. And this is about six months in. He goes, that's strange, Ash. I, I don't see that at all. I can't tell the difference. And then that was also, you know, they're very small things, but they become very pivotal things like Richard said to me. Ash, it's going to be really good for you. You're going to learn loads. And then Paul Morton was his name saying, yeah, I can't tell any difference what you're worried about. And then all of those things were, yeah, right. Perhaps there isn't one. It's just, you realize a lot of this stuff is things you're inventing in your own mind rather than existing in reality. I think that's such a good point. And I mean, it, it applies to all, all areas of our life, doesn't it? I do want to touch on, just to help before I do, it may or may not matter, but what in PwC parlance grade did you enter at? What, what level were you in the firm when you entered? Yeah, senior manager. Okay, so you were you were sort of to the mid top end of of the firm, but interestingly, to your point, that's where people do start to get more involved in you know, BD activities, internal activities, and actually for you, it was still same job, different. You know, started as same job, different batch, by the sounds of it. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I, actually, right at the end of Paragon, I had a practice lead role, 
And yeah, that meant there was a portion of the business that I was responsible for, except I was not equipped in any way really, or even aware enough to understand what that actually meant and how to do the job. I just had the title and the role. And I guess in that environment, it was enough. And it was, yeah, obviously that was not my reflection at the time. And then when we moved into PwC, that role doesn't exist in that way. There are different sort of virtual teams, I guess, that you create within it. Yeah, so the grade was senior manager, and that comes with the typical expectations of that level in that type of organization. So it's a little bit different to practice manager, but as I said, on reflection, I didn't really understand what all of those different things were. So actually not doing them in the next role didn't matter too much. I obviously wasn't quite ready to understand how to make the most of that opportunity, I suppose. And in the smaller world of Paragon, that was okay, but there was more growing up and learning to do in the wider world of PwC. And just because you mentioned it, and it, it, it touched on a question I was going to ask, but as someone had said it to you first, I'm, I want to get what Richard had said to you. And it might have been as simple as, you know, Ash, this will be good for you and now I'm off. But when he was almost pitching that to you, what did he say are the benefits of this for you? Well, he would have used different words and I don't remember what those words particularly were. But if I was to reflect on what's the gift that PwC gives you, it is 100%. It's not the world-class training program and access to those courses and the quality of them. That is great and it is world-class, but it's the working with a lot of different personalities and styles on lots of different types of projects and customers. That's where the growth and development comes from. So it's not just landing in there. Well, some of it is just this, it, it brushes off. So you take all of those different styles and experiences, ways of working, and then you pick out the bits that work for you. And then over time, you make them your own. And that's what allows you to grow and develop. And I think that's what the gift that PwC gives you. And I think that's why if I reflect on, I couldn't do what I'm doing today without that experience. What I enjoy in this show is when, when guests say something, and it's obvious once you hear it, but you forget it in day-to-day -day life. And like you say, when some people think of bigger firms, you hear of bureaucracy and structures and policies, which can sometimes concern those who come from a smaller business. But actually, you know, that plus side, like you've said, learning, you know, we talk about mentorship a lot. You know, the whole goal of this podcast is mentorship and advice. And actually, you will get great mentorship anywhere. But if you work with 20 different people in a year, you've been exposed to 20 different styles. And, and like you say, actually, if you are then conscious of what they do and what you like and don't like, what works for you, what doesn't, you you, know, you have the potential to accelerate much faster. And it sounds like that was what you really took from it is you're suddenly seeing all these different approaches that you can then bring into your future career and, and ultimately what you're doing now. That's exactly right. You're, it's the, the mix that you're working with is always different. In essence, that is the beauty of consulting as well. That's one of the reasons we do the job is because it's, it's different every single time. But the mix is a really important one. And if you're in a smaller firm, that is quite often a limiting factor. There's a limit to the number of ingredients you can mix up because you don't have as much at your disposal when you're in a larger firm. The mix is unlimited, right? So you definitely do work with some consistent themes of style or type of project because that's your specialization and there'll be a, a more finite number of people that do that. But it's still a much bigger, wider mix. And the nature of how the firm is structured with your know, partners by industry sector means if you're working across industry sector, you're always going to be mixing up the leadership of the project. And that's where you draw a lot of your experiences from. And those are the things that become very formative and, and shape you the most going forward. At least that's how I looked at it. We've touched on as well, day one or year one, it was, it was pretty much same stuff, different badge in terms of you were doing client work, you had expectations of you, but ultimately the day-to-day -day role was similar. 
in my mind, you had 40 people all join a business at different levels in the firm. Some will have gone on to success at that firm. Some will have moved on to find success elsewhere. You obviously had a really good career there as well. And I'd, I'd be interested, actually, what you found those who did the best did differently from those who maybe didn't progress as fast. You, you know, that meeting others is one part, doing a great client job is, a, is another part. But were there any ingredients either for yourself or that you saw of former colleagues or others who were sort of brought in from boutiques that you kind of singled out as that secret source? That is a difficult one. I would say it's being comfortable with uncertainty. So it really is hard to pick one or two things because ultimately I think a lot of it comes down to a, a choice. You either enjoy working in a large firm or you don't and it's they're, they're very different experiences. It is complicated and it takes effort and energy to try and navigate your career in a world that's, that is complicated. That's It's harder to do than in a smaller firm. There's more things happening to be aware of. But I would say if I was trying to distill it down into something sort of fairly simple, it would be you have to be comfortable that you can't control all of the things in your environment as you could in a smaller firm because there are more moving parts and you have to be willing to accept and embrace that variety or the uncertainty and kind of go with it. Be always up for it and willing to have a go. And I think if you do that, you're approaching everything with the right mindset and then it doesn't matter about the complexity because you're not focused on the bits you can't control. That's the difference really. But if you try to put your arms around that environment, you're not going to find it possible. And I think that's probably the difference between the two. The more you try to control the bit you can't control, the more difficult you're going to find life in a firm that's that large and complicated. Yeah, I think I think it's a great point. And like you say, probably something that if you come from a world where, I don't know, there's five of you, 10 of you, and, and you can see all of everything people are doing into your point, sort of metaphorically get your arms around, it's going to be unlikely at 22,000. And you're probably frustrate yourself trying. Yeah. And it's, it's about being exposed and it's, that can feel very uncomfortable because you don't know what the next project is or necessarily even what it's going to be about. Of course it does. And we'll always try to relate loosely to your capabilities, but there's a greater variety of projects that you're going to do in a firm like PwC than you are in a firm like Paragon, because say there's five different things that we do as Paragon and PwC, guess what? It's a hundred thousand different things because there's, there's a lot more that they have um, access to in terms of winning and delivering work that we couldn't possibly hope to achieve as Paragon. That's where the uncertainty comes in. So it is going to relate to your skill set, but it's not always going to be identical. And you need to understand that you have to navigate that different environment each time and sort of embrace that for the for the growth opportunity it is. A great point. And, and I realise, and my question implied that I'm, I'm being down on, on boutique firms, and, and obviously that is not the intention. And almost to, to give back to those in the boutiques, you know, you, that is one side of the coin of what is it that you know people struggled with. But equally, you probably would have got a really interesting vantage point having come from that boutique about skills that maybe you or your colleagues had that were kind of more advanced or, or just you'd had more exposure to than some of your colleagues at PwC and bigger firms like it. And I just, in those early years, was there anything that you thought, wow, I, I actually am much further ahead in this because of that smaller firm experience? It undoubtedly was. I wouldn't have thought of it in those terms. I, I definitely didn't perceive myself as being further ahead in any way. But as you asked the question, if I reflect on it now, what I would say is that there are, there are two things that are markedly different. One is the specialization. So in a smaller firm, a boutique, you will have a specialization, which means there's a far smaller number of things that you're going to be doing. Therefore, you get 
because you, you repeat them more often, you become deeper in that area. So your depth of specialization is greater because you're not exposed to the variety in the same way as you're likely to be exposed in, in PwC. The second part is it's a smaller business. You can comprehend it better. So understanding all of the different components, I mean, you understand the basics of consulting, which is chargeable time at a rate and the number of hours you do equals how much money the firm is going to make minus the cost. So you kind of get the broad strokes of consulting, but you're less exposed to and have less reason to expose to what it takes to grow and run the business. You know, recruitment is a different lens. And it's, I mean, that's one of the things I experienced more acutely when I moved to Lumi than I did when I was in Paragon. But you're more directly involved with things like recruitment and the sort of living and dying by that decision as well, which is a very interesting thing we could touch on a bit later as well. But the um, it, all of the different bits about how you look at the data, the performance of the company, you, you just have access to more of that scope that makes up the business than your world in PwC, which certainly at senior manager and below is much more about you know, delivering really good projects and trying to grow to the next grade and level. So there's a commercial element for sure, but it's not as rounded as you'd be exposed to in a boutique. Well, and I, I think that brings us quite nicely to Inlumi and and the move. And I will, uh, I've made a note of that living and dying by decisions point, because we, we will come back to that. But for those who are listening, who you gave a brief overview at the start, but to sort of take them into the, the detail of how the opportunity came about, you'd spent a good chunk of time at PwC, obviously then the opportunity to, to lead the UK business for Inlumi. Where did it come from? And tell me about that decision to, to, I guess, take the leap back into the boutique world. Yeah, so it was an opportunity that you kind of make for yourself, I think, rather than one that comes to you and you've got to be open to it. So for me, uh, I was working on a project. It wasn't the last one I did at PwC, but it was 15 months long and 12 months was great. Three months was super hard, like probably the hardest I've ever worked on on any one thing. And what got us through the three difficult months wasn't, any external factor or force or uh, quality of brand. It was just the quality of the people in the room and how well they worked together. And I realized actually you could take that room full of people, put them somewhere else, and they're just as good, just as valuable, except you're, you can be more specialized. You can concentrate on a smaller number of topics and get really, really good at them. At the same time, as I was thinking about that, I also knew that there was another generation of technology coming to the market. That's a really good time to think about new things because you, the software vendors are hungry and they go and shake up the market and what spills out are projects. And then it's about being positioned as a consulting company that can come and help deliver those, right? So it's a really good time to be in the market because you, you're not the only one hunting for work. There's a bigger company out there hungrier than you and you just need to try and feed off the same table, which is the simplistic theory anyway. And then the final part was I really enjoyed consulting. I still do, but I wanted to add some more dimensions to the role outside of delivering and winning and delivering work. And it was harder to see a route to do that inside the larger firm, uh, just because you, you can take larger leadership roles. Of course you can, as you work up into the partner level and through the organization, but it's still a large firm and you, there's only a limit to what you're going to be able to influence and put your stamp or brand on. So if you want a more entrepreneurial experience, a, you know, a blank, a sheet of paper, you can color in, in any which way you choose, where you need a different environment to do it in. So I suppose it's a mix of those three things, which is realizing as long as you get the right people, any you know, difficult project can be an easy project, as long as you get the right people on it. There's a timing thing, which is actually there is going to be a new generation to market. That's quite a good time to start something up, given my background, history and skill set. And then the last one was, if you want to make a shift in your role, how could you do it 
and still hold on to some of the things you really enjoy doing. So it's about trying to find a new environment and then you're left with, I think, two choices, which is from the ground up, something brand new, or you find an existing brand you can add value to. And I chose the latter as a way of managing a little bit of the risk, I suppose, and proving myself to myself along the way. I think... A really thorough overview. It's funny, obviously, we met through through John Howard, and it, it, it reminds me of what he said about too many people think about what they don't want, and actually, they don't think about what they do want. And I think in your description there, it's clear you you thought carefully about where you wanted to go, and by the sounds of it, that opportunity appeared. So you'd made that decision not to start your own thing. You, you decided to, like you say, sort of start something within an established brand. You said you you made the opportunity. So how did that then come about? Because again, I think for anyone in that position, and I know a number of people who are now thinking, I'd love to do exactly what you you did and have done. How did you find that you know, consulting firm that was looking for someone to start that business? It's another thing, actually. It talks to something you become more aware of in the larger firm than you, than you do in a boutique if you only grow up in a boutique. And it's the power and value of your network. So that's where it comes from. And I wouldn't have perceived or even understood what that really meant when I was in Paragon because everyone I knew, I mean, obviously I knew customers and I knew um, people at software vendors and things like that, but I didn't really think of it in as how powerful a force it actually is and how much benefit that can bring you. So that's where the opportunity came from, really. As soon as I'd started to make the decision in my mind that I wanted to make a change, but I wasn't 100% sure what it was. You pick up the phone and then you start calling people and you start being open to advice. And in one of those phone calls, I received the advice, which is you know, maybe you could pick a brand you can add value to. Why don't you give this guy a call? I think they're, they're thinking about coming to the UK. Maybe that's something that could be interesting. So you know, one text message later to that phone number and 15 minutes after that, I had my first phone call and we went from there. It was more complicated after that moment, but the first bit happened super fast. So there's a there's an app in there, isn't there? Text for a job yes. or something along those lines. Your points, I fully agree with. You know the, that power of your network. I do wonder for some people though, if you're in so somewhere like a PwC or a big firm, the advantage is the breadth, the network. Almost, I would imagine for some people, the risk or concern is because I'm in such a big firm, if I text Joe, they might know Jane and Jane might know my boss. And did you have that concern around what if, and, and if so, how did you overcome it? Because I, I do think that's a real concern for some people that stops them reaching out to their network. I didn't think of it, actually. <laughs> so no, I mean, to be honest, I was thinking only of, I'd like to make a change. I don't 100% know what that should look like. And I don't 100% know where I want it to lead me but I'm ready for a change. And I just picked up the phone and didn't hesitate. I think that is a good uh, a good steer for anyone who is on the fence because it obviously worked. And you had this phone call with this, you know, with the person looking to come over here. That's still quite a big risk, I guess, a big decision. You know, there's plenty of businesses that want to launch in the UK and, and some go really well, some, you know, some don't make it. What did you during that process, I guess, either ask or I guess in your own head or with your family or with your advisors sort of think about and, and discuss to make sure this was the right option for you? Because as I say, that's the the other element is if you're trying to find a named brand or a brand that's already established, you've still got to do your due diligence on them. So I'd love to know actually how how you approach that side of things to make sure this was the right place for you. It's probably a big part of well, certainly what I think about in interviews is it was about making a decision as to who to work with, which is, do you have a personal connection when you speak? Uh, are you interested in what they have to say? And do you believe what it is that they are saying? And then 
the rest of it is about then making other phone calls to, as you said, do your due diligence and find out what their perception and reputation in the market is. So with, with my particular story, the first, actually what I joined was the merge of two companies and I started talking to them before they had merged. So what I agreed to take on was the launch of a new brand in the UK of this newly merged company. So one party was based in the UK. The other party was more Scandinavian and they were the ones looking to come over. So it was, I guess, everything converged together at the right time to make it a really good opportunity. And I suppose it was a bit of luck as well, really. So it assuaged one of the problems that you're describing, which was, yes, a big chunk of the business was new and not known in the UK, but it had an established operation. The other half had an established operation. It just didn't do what I did. And that was the fun part, really. And because it was two companies coming together, in my mind, that gave us a blank sheet of paper. We were going to get a new name. And that said, right, all bets are off. You can colour that in any way you want. And that was what I was really looking forward to. And then the last part was then kind of do you, do you back yourself to be able to do it? And of course, I had as many doubts as anyone else would about that. I didn't sit there going, right, I'm going to smash it out of the park. I thought, I think it'll be all right, but I don't really know. So the final ingredient was find some people that are really good to do it with. And that's was that would be my single, I have two bits of advice. That would be the first and probably the biggest one, which is if you can find really good people to do it with, your chances of success are exponentially higher and you can share the peaks and troughs along the way and you definitely need that. The last part is then find the route to revenue first. So if you want to reduce your anxiety in the early phases, it's get paid. And that's the thing that probably made the most difference was doing it with people that I knew we could be successful together with and finding that quick PL hit to get us going. I think two great bits of advice. Ash. It's clear you had those two sort of, that was step one and one, I guess, going in, like those two things needed to happen. I guess more in terms of, it sounded like you were ready for this and this might be a question you, again, it just hit you naturally, but how did you find that shift then back from big to small firm? Because, you know, we talked earlier about that transition the other way. How was that for you? Was was there anything you found you really needed to focus on sort of getting up to speed on? Or was it more just the opportunity and the excitement kind of carried you through with that? Uh, that last statement is definitely true. You do approach that with enthusiasm and you can't wait to get going and it's really exciting and that does fuel a lot. You also described the problem and the fun altogether, really, which is the the fun part is you, you don't have an established function inside the organization that you can fall back on and the fun bit is then you have to do that yourself now it's not 100 percent true in this case there was definitely existing departments which you could draw on for support but we wanted to do things differently at the same time as well and that was the fun bit really so well if you think about pwc so whenever it makes a change of anything it's a sight to behold it's awesome right it's you can't imagine anything slicker the you're over communicated to it happens like clockwork and behind the scenes obviously it's a lot more effort but what comes to you as the recipient of the change is something that's you, you i can't think of an, uh, anyone that does it better and then you go into a smaller firm and then you're just not going to replicate that experience you just ha don't have the resources behind you or the expertise to be able to do it but therein lies the fun bit as well really you, you, you get to structure it in the way that you want with your ideas and you can implement them and you can do them really quick so that's a really good bit then the next part is what we wanted to well you were saying what was the difference between the two we had to reset our expectations as to what big was so numbers become perceived very very differently so in the larger firm a big number there 
is a really big number and you get into the smaller firm and you have to find yourself getting it you have to find a way to get yourself excited by a far smaller number when it comes to winning new work and things like that so you just reset your expectations so that that was a definite change in your mindset which was yeah being really appreciative of smaller things to begin with but then that was also really the, the fun part that became your successes and you earned them in entirety so the whilst there was a an unending amount of things we needed to do to be able to structure the firm in the way we wanted and offer people that joined us the experience we wanted to you also can't do everything on day one and the focus has to be on where's the money coming from it has to be on the work and the quality of work that you can deliver that's the number one and then the number two that happens covering parallel is, is people that's the future fuel of the organization and any problem you've got is made simpler and smaller by having and picking the right people so you touched on it there, Ash, and I, I'm going to ask you, because you did, you've mentioned recruitment a few times and that revenue piece as well. And I, I actually think they're both interesting because at their heart, they're both sales. Well, they're both sales and marketing. You have to market your business to prospective recruits and sell them. You have to then find clients and sell them. And, and you mentioned like those are your two kind of lifebloods because yes, if it's a cash flow business. If you don't have clients, you're, you're not going to go very far. Actually, what did you and the team do in those early days? You know, when, when you had, I'm going to try it, you had that blank bit of paper, what were you drawing? What were those pens and, and what were the things you rubbed out and what stayed on the wall and got in the frame? There were a few things that were important to the beginning. We, we needed to create a structure for people to come into that was the beginnings of what would become a career path and a development framework and a clearer setting of expectations against the levels and then you know, a coaching and development structure that supported people navigating all of that. So that's where we wanted to get to. We didn't necessarily perceive all of that on day one and we couldn't have, or we didn't need it on day one. There wasn't anyone in the team, so there wasn't anyone to go through it. But that's where we knew we needed to get to. But first off, you needed a structure and some levels. You needed to get the basics in place, which was then, right, what's your rate card against the levels? What are the salary expectations against the levels? And then you into, right, how do we describe the role? And who is it we're actually looking for? So you, you kind of get that, the basics of the people part and the basics of the commercial part set up, at least in your mind. And, and then it was, right, how are you describing yourself to the customer? So that becomes the next thing because it's the first conversation you're going to have is, right, who are you and what does that mean? So there was a lot of writing and rubbing, to use your analogy, and there was a few bits that did remain. We use completely different words now, I am sure, but a lot of it was around sharing what we know, sort of being a specialist boutique firm, so knowing the areas in which we could be the best and the experts. And then the rest of it was being, it was about how we worked so again, it's a bit vague language, but we concentrated a lot in our minds on what it felt like to work with us and what it felt like to work for us. And in, a, in our view, they was, that was all we really controlled was that experience. There's a lot of stuff that happened in the world around you, which you couldn't really influence, but the experience of what it felt like inside our organization and experience of a customer working with us as an organization, we felt like that was our problem to own. And it was putting our hands and arms around them first. That was what was really important then working out what's the language you would use to describe that. Because you're also, you're slightly reticent that you're going to try and come up with unique and new language to describe seven other business or 70 other businesses that already exist inside the market in which you're trying to trade. So are you really that different? So how, how and what is that difference? And how would you describe it without using the same words as the next guy and the next guy after that? 
So we've taken a long time and you know, maybe we come onto this at some point, maybe we don't, but trying to put that kind of culture into words and get everyone to feel and believe the same thing. So we, that was the, the sort of writing and rubbing at the beginning was trying to put the beginnings of that into words. And then you go straight out into the market and start using it with customers and also recruitment consultants. They became our access to the market in terms of people. Obviously, we had our own networks, but the best way to then go out was what we picked a couple of recruitment firms that we liked uh, and formed a relationship with and then just sold ourselves to them and figured, well, if they believe it, they're going to go out and tell their portfolio of people about us too. And maybe that gets us the best people in. I really like the, the, your point around almost that sort of circle of control or circle of influence. You know, I think very often we can focus on too many things that aren't in our control and almost extrapolate back that we change them or, or be disheartened that we couldn't change them. And actually that focus, you know, boiling it down to what's it like being here? What's it like working with us? Your point on recruiters actually struck me as well, because I think sometimes our industry we can see it's a bit adversarial, you know, recruiters make money off us, so they, they you kind of got to keep them at arm's length. But almost your point of a bit like, I guess, tech vendors now is they are selling you. So if they are excited about you, they will sell you, you know, you are not the only firm they have on their shelf. So actually investing in them sounds like, I mean, I, I should ask, you know, how did that help you? And sort of what benefits did you see from that? Because it was quite an interesting approach when you said it. Yeah, actually, now you said it's a puts it into sharper relief, if you like. And that was, we tried to hit the market as hard as we could. And they were the sort of main three food groups, really. It was it was recruiters and people we were recruiting to so the, the, the people side that we wanted to be joining the organization, the customers, and then the software vendor. And that, there are three routes to market, if you like. And we kind of gave them all the same big pitch, which was, you'd sort of go in and hit them hard, which is, you know, we have the polish of the larger organization that, that's created us and our experiences along the way. And then, but we're in a smaller specialized boutique environment now that's focused on a very specific problem. And then we sort of bring the best of those worlds together. And that became the essence of it. And then, by the way, we're really easy to work with. And this is some of the things we believe in. And you just pedal that pitch around those three main channels and then hopefully good will happen. So you, you teed me up for culture and I, I do want to come on to it, but I made a note and I said I'd come back to this and I, I, I'll be honest, Ashraj, I can't think of a better place to bring it in. So I'm going to bring it in and if it's a nice segue to culture, make it that segue. If it's completely different, I just, I'm intrigued by the answer and we can move on. And that was your point around moving to a boutique. You suddenly have to live and die by your decisions. Just because I was interested, tell me what that means to you and, and what living and dying by those decisions really looks like, you know, when you move to Illumi. It's all about consequence. There, there are a couple of things that jumped straight to mind and one of them I was referring to specifically before. So the, the, the first one, I remember we did our first interviews and the, the guy still works for us and he's brilliant. He was awesome. We had no doubts that he would be great for us and we wanted to hire him. And when it came to sign the offer, I realized the permanence of the decision and the fact I'd never actually had to do that or worry about the consequences before. So in the larger organization, yeah, you have to pick the right person, but if it isn't, that hits you in almost no way. It, it it doesn't, right? And it gets lost in a sea of other things. And you, 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 yeah, you just don't think of them in that way. You know that you need more people with a certain skill set to come into the team. But if you can't utilize them, it's lost in a bigger sea of non-utilized work. It's not directly back to that single thing. So, But in a smaller company, you're three people, that's going to add another 25%. It's one more person. And there's no one behind you to sign it off, right? It was your call, right? There wasn't anyone else. It was what you wanted. I wanted to make the call. But as soon as you have to make it, you're like, shit, I've got to make the call. And I remember thinking, you know, now you 
it becomes a normal thing. But that then signing those first few contracts, you realised it was a very big decision and it had a PL impact and it had a, also a cultural impact on the organisation. And there wasn't anyone there that was more equipped or even had the job to be able to make the call. It was yours and yours alone. And then you've got the commercials on the projects as well. So you're right, I think it's 100 days or 300 days and here's the rate card we're going to do it at. And then they say, cool, that sounds great. We're up for that. Will you fix your fee? And then, of course, again, you're locked in commercially and there's no one else to you can test that with people around you, but it's your decision and you're going to make it work or isn't going to work, but it's on you. And that's, again, it's what you wanted, but what comes with the consequence. I think two great examples to bring it to life. And we touched on decisions and, and culture and and this might then play into, you talked about actually the impact one individual has on culture. Fast forward and in Lumi's now a business of over 200 people, as I understand, you've got offices across UK, Europe, Middle East, Africa, there's a big team of you. And I'd love to understand, because it sounds like from an early start point in the UK, you, you did a lot of work with culture. Fast forward, you're now CEO of a, a large organization cross-culturally. Actually, how have you built that culture? And feel free to answer this in order or weave them together, but how have you may also made that work where you are dealing with different regions and different people because different countries have different ways of being, different expectations, different HR policies. So take me on that journey of building the culture and, and how you've got it to where you are today. It's another large and expensive, I, expensive that's what I like. To, that's what I like to ask, Ash. <laughs> so it's something that forms along the way and it, it's a really interesting one that you ask actually. And um, you, you start with something and a way of describing it and a way of working and what you want it to feel like. And that's what we used to say more often than not. It's the experience of working with us and for us. But then someone's go, cool, what does that actually mean? And it's, we, we were definitely lacking the language. We knew what we were feeling, but it was hard to express. And then the next part, so you go into your other point there, which is, yeah, we're 250 people in 10 different countries and culturally they're all very different. Of course they are. So how is that consistent or replicated across those different countries? And the answer is, you don't know. And if you're trying to grow as well and 25% new people coming in, maybe 10% leaving, so X percent are new inside the organizations every single year. So how do they understand the culture, what it is they're joining and how to fit into it are really big considerations. And it's largely it's what you, you need to build yourself and your business in a market that's, that's buoyant and where you can generate revenue, but how you can succeed in that is fueled by the culture of the organization and it's directed by the strategy of the organization. So, but the culture part became a really important one. And what we were missing was the language and then also the assurance for ourselves that we wouldn't lose the secret source. It wouldn't, we wouldn't lose what it felt like to be us and what it, the sense of belonging to us as an organization. So the answer to the question is, well, the first part to, to answer it, obviously is one we haven't truly finished answering yet is we did an exercise this year that focus specifically on the culture. And what we knew is we couldn't do it top down. It had to be something that every single person in the company was involved in. So I, I truly believe this. It's, it, it isn't the culture that I want that matters. It's the culture that we all agree we want that matters. And that's the way we approached it was to get advice. You know, it's one of the things that we give as an organization is advice. That's what we peddle our stuff on. So it would seem logical to us if we want to do an exercise this, like this, we need to get external advice to help us. That's what we did. And then we performed an exercise across the organization that allowed us to put language to the culture. And what that said is, this is where you are now. 
this is where you want to be in the context of where you're trying to take the company in terms of growth. So here are the shifts you need to make, but here's the consistent language that everyone has contributed to and agrees with that describes what it feels like and what it means to work for Inlumi. And that is the beginnings of how you try to manage the culture in a growing organization across lots of different countries that have their own cultures. And the last part is accepting that there is differences across those countries that are culturally driven that you can't and shouldn't try to change. So the Inlumi one, you know, we can put language and words to how you operate in that coming from South Africa versus Sweden versus the UK versus the Netherlands or wherever else will always be slightly different and that's okay. So it's about them making sure that all of them have a voice, are heard, feel a sense of belonging and understand that their slight differences in ways of working are as embraced as anyone else's. What were the questions you asked? You said you asked everyone a set of questions to get that language. Just if, if you remember any of the top of head, what were those main questions that everyone answered to sort of give you that secret source, those, that language? Yeah, there was a range and a lot of it came from, there, there, was a, there was a questionnaire element and a lot of it was from interviews, but it was, it was the stories that people told more than specific answers to questions. So there was, there was definitely something around ambition. There was things around what you love the most. There was things about what's really hard. So there was areas that focused on the good times and areas that focused on the difficult times and then how you show up at those moments. They were probably the more telling ones, what you wanted it to feel. And then the experience you wanted to have inside the organization. So I, I know I didn't give a specific set of three questions that we asked, but it was it was more conversational the way we got to it in interviews and then a series of broader, bigger workshops, fireside chats. We created a culture squad, which was comprised of the most connected people in the organization. So you can do that via a questionnaire to understand who touches whom and then you form that culture squad. It's by invitation. That culture squad is what goes out, then finds the answers to the questions you're searching for. And a lot of that comes from anecdotes and stories. And then you, you do also ask the question externally of customers, the experience of working with you, partners that you work with as well with a, with a different relationship. And it's the combination of all of that that gets you to yeah, a document which describes your culture, your culture playbook, the secret source on, on a paper. Was there anything... That when you got to that playbook, to that secret source, was, it, was there anything that for you or, or the leadership team actually was a surprise almost you, you didn't expect going in either way? You know, was there anything you're like, wow, that's something that I never knew was really important to everyone or wow, that's something that I didn't know we did that we have to change? Any, yeah, I'd, I'd just be fascinated if anything like that came out. Possibly the bit I'm most proud of and was most excited to see included was about caring. So, and the, the nature of caring was kindness at one end. It was also an environment of belonging where everyone could feel at home and authentic and that they had a way to contribute that was valued and they could show up as themselves. And also, it was also about giving the right messages. So there was the probably the harder side of kindness, which was the, you know, the feedback part, which was given in the right spirit, in the right context, with the right ad advice and intention. You know, even if it is a more difficult message to hear, that was also important. It wasn't just arms around love for the sake of love. It was you know, sometimes you know, there's a harder edge to kindness. And that, that's the one I loved the most, really. It, was, it talks more to bigger purpose of the organization, a point to it all. And it, for me, is the one that talks most to the environment that people want to work within. It was the, the we care part. 
Fantastic. And I thought it was really interesting what you said around actually with when working cross-culturally, cross-geography, part of it is not trying to force everyone into one type of culture almost. It's a culture, but an acceptance that how the Swedes approach something might be slightly different to us, slightly different to those in, in South Africa, I guess. The other side, and it may be less cultural, more ways of working, but obviously as a business, you've grown quite quickly. You've opened, required these offices, so sort of bringing teams in. How have you approached actually getting colleagues to understand each other and those cultural differences? Because you know, you, you mentioned the Netherlands. Take well, you mentioned South Africa as well. Take take the UK and the Netherlands. As as Brits, we are very polite. We may not say what we really think. The Dutch, and this is a gross generalization for any, any <laughs> Dutch people listening or Go Brits, but they're much more direct to the point. You know, often if you've been on ever been on a meeting with a Dutch person, they're like, why are we doing this fluffy stuff? Just get to the the point. And that does happen. Yeah. <laughs> And did you have to, or, or have you done anything proactively to help people work together? Or have you found anything that has really helped people bridge those nuances? Because at their worst, if those aren't understood, they can come across as, you know, a Dutch person's rude or a Brit doesn't tell me what they think. So yeah, I'd just be interested how you've managed that for Inlumi. There's probably two or three things. There's The first one's representation, making sure that they have a voice at the leadership level across the countries. Um, and we achieve that by the sort of the matrix of how we're set up. People have international roles, people have country roles, and those things intersect. So it's making sure that everyone is represented in some way. And it's, it's, it is difficult to manage and it creates a more complex structure, but it is an important one. The other one is then, and this is something we did before we made the change we're about to come on to, and it helped a bit, which is creating communities in the organization that brought people together via skill sets or you know, common interests and capabilities. And that was always mixed up of international teams. So that gave people a way to engage together, which, which ultimately really is the only way to understand those cultural differences and be accepting of them is just get people to experience working together and understanding those styles. The other one is, I suppose, coming in with the right mindset, which is we are all from different places and that's okay. And we want to hear from each other. The bit that makes the biggest difference is then the work in the trenches. And we made a big change in the organization uh, halfway through last year, which was to centralize the consulting team from country by country to a single single unit, an international team. And from that point on, we we're able to mix up the resources on projects. So every team becomes truly international. We did it for very practical reasons, which were, it was almost impossible as we were doing bigger and more complicated projects to be equally good at them in every single country all at the same time across the multiple vendors that we work with. In fact, it was it was impossible. You just couldn't replicate that skill set at depth and scale everywhere all at the same time and hold your hand up and say, yeah, we're, we're awesome at it everywhere. It wasn't possible. You had to blend together those skill sets. So that was the practical part. The, the real benefit was we're always working in international teams. Therefore, there is no overriding culture of any one country because it's an entire mix up of all of it. So you sort of force people into the same pot and then you use the culture of the organization and what it believes to then drive the behaviors. You mentioned earlier around people's challenge, well, just human nature and and our natural aversion to change. And just because you mentioned it there around that shift that obviously has helped bring everyone together. How did you manage that to bring those people on the journey? And almost how did you deal with any pushback if you got it? Yeah, the pushbacks are harder point, I suppose. The main thing that drives all of it is communication. So, and there's two parts to that. One is making sure you're really clear on what it is you're going to do when you're doing it and why. And the why is super important so people understand the context and the point of it. 
different representation point I mentioned before, so that the local leaders feel that they have a voice and that the teams below them understand that that voice is there. And then also forgetting about the hierarchy of leadership, it's that there's an open channel of communication where hierarchy doesn't matter and people inside the organization feel like they have access to leadership and can say what they feel and that's okay. So it's trying to encourage and always ask for feedback and input along the way of making the change that was really important. Do, do I say it was therefore universally accepted and loved? Probably not, but it was something we had to do for the betterment of the organization and we were doing it for the right reasons or certainly the right reasons that we believed. And then it was about being clear on the why and then asking for input along the way. I know you mentioned it about culture, but I think implicit in there that that kindness and the feedback, but the the directness of that. And actually, you know, I've heard it called kind candor before the honest, it's kindness through honesty. That doesn't mean you have to, like you said, everyone loves each other and everyone's amazing. And it always makes me think of that sort of Jim Collins, good to great is, you know, people decide how long they stay on the bus. It's a great, we were talking, um, I know we're talking ahead of this about book recommendations. And actually that is one that a lot of guests have recommended. And, And yes, I love the fox and the hedgehog story. Yes. Well, it's, it's one of the very few business books which actually has solid research behind it, but with a practical purpose. There's a lot of academic theory and there's a lot of business books with no theory, but actually very few that combine the two. Yeah. Imagine, th- imagine being able to lead a company that fitted his criteria of good to great, that 15 years of year-on-year success at that level is just incredible. Well, let's let, let's come back in fifteen years and see if if uh, Lumi is featuring Indeed. good to great too, and we'll have another conversation <laughs> then, Ash. Um, and we're joking there about that long term piece, but you've obviously got a long term mindset in building the business. You know your approach to people, for instance, when you're saying we're building the frameworks, the career paths, the the grade structures. You know that that shows your thinking long term. I guess there's an interesting element of, and stop me if you can't talk about this, but I know in Lumi is is PE backed, and I'd just be maybe interesting how, if there is any tension there and how you manage it as the CEO between what is your drive for building a long-term successful large business and what is sometimes a shorter term timescale for a PE investor. Yeah, I'd be really interested in sort of how you approach that. It's a super interesting one. It's, it's an area that I feel privileged to have been able to go through the experience of that process of a firm being yeah, PE backed in the end, you know, sort of bought out and PE backed. And then understanding the dynamics and what's important that goes into that process has been a real privilege and it's been a real experience for me. It's also been a very positive one as well. And that actually is an interesting question because I haven't experienced any tension with that really. And it definitely exists, right? So there is a shorter term horizon for PE, even though that is measured in sort of five years or so. So it's a fairly long horizon, but it is a shorter one than the intended lifespan of the company and the, the horizon we look for, which is far longer. But therein lies almost the answer, which is it's about growing the company in the right and the best way. And that having that trajectory that goes beyond the the current P investors horizon, that's, that's what kind of manages it really, because your and our plans extend beyond that horizon. And it becomes all about the the growth. And that's the two things that bind it together, which is we don't want anything different. We're all aiming to grow the, the, the company in the best way across the next period of years and beyond that. And that's what will yield the best return for PE as well, is having a trajectory that goes far beyond their intended lifespan of the investment. And that's the, the two things that come together is 
And that's super important. And in my opinion, can't ever be any different, which is you have to have exactly the same goal. And as soon as you're aligned on that, which we are, everything else is is managed. And just because it, it informs my next question, was the P firm you work with backing the business when you joined or did they come later? Later. So that happened only uh, last year. So to your point on goal, I I suspect you, know, you spoke to a number of firms. Yeah. How did you select the firm you're working with? How, how did you get comfortable that their goals and their vision for the business was going to be the same as yours? It comes down to one very simple thing. And maybe I, well, I wouldn't have perceived it as simply at the time as I do now looking back at it, but it, it's, it's people. At the end of the day, you're working with a person in the PE firm. So the PE firm itself is a fund that's made an investment and you get a portion of that. But there's a person in charge of that investment and making sure that that delivers the return that's been promised as part of the fund. So really it's you working with that person is the main thing that matters. I mean, they're looking at that as well, which is kind of work with them. Do I believe them when they say uh, they're going to do what they're going to do? Therefore, will a customer believe them? And it becomes all about that personal relationship. So that's the the single biggest thing. At the beginning, I would have thought, right, what's what else is in the portfolio of the PE firm that makes sense for us to be part of that we might be able to leverage? But really, you need to find your own way in the world. It's not really about that. It's about the relationship between the person that looks after you as the investment and how you're going to work together and how you're aligned on what you're trying to do and how to do it. So that was the main thing that came out. And it's been a, a great experience. Alex is the guy that we work with as part of Nimbus, which is the, the PE firm. And it was and all did come down to building that personal relationship in the deal process. And that's what differentiated them from the others. And you, I think you've teed me up quite nicely for another question around, you mentioned sort of your, I guess your preconceived ideas about the benefits of PE that sort of will leverage the portfolio businesses. Sort of almost for anyone who's at that point in the journey considering this, almost was there anything else where actually now having been through that journey, either it was what you thought you were going to get and actually that wasn't the priority or on the flip side, you hadn't even thought of it and that's been a huge benefit of that relationship. Yeah, so yeah, the portfolio bit you thought was important but it actually isn't. And there's one really good thing you always have to remember and stick to, which is you run the business, you're in charge and in control of the successes and failures of it, you and everyone else inside the firm. And that's what they're investing in. They're not coming with the magic answers or the secret sauce, right? That's what yours is to earn. That's the job you took on. That's the fun bit. That's what you want to do. And they're making an investment in that and it's an endorsement. It's not an answer to any problem. But the hidden bit that I, well, it wasn't hidden. I just hadn't thought about it at the time, which was they do come with advice though, because they see lots of other organizations, how they're set up and they're structured and they come with advice, right? So it's another source of data and input to think about the business and also the future of the business. And that's what's interesting. They're, they're less attuned to who you are and what you do. They can only understand what you tell them because they haven't lived inside the organization for as long unless they come from this industry at all in their background. So it's that cold, detached view that they have and the experience of the fact that they do this with lots of other organizations. So that becomes a real useful source of knowledge and it's just another input. So you still need to own and control the business and the decision. They don't actually want to do that. Or certainly that's, that's my experience with Alex and with Nimbus. That's what they trust you to do. That's why they invested in your business. And what you can use them for though is advice about how best to structure it and how best to keep 
that trajectory going, which is the thing that will serve you both the best in the long run anyway, in the short and medium term, which is keep the trajectory of growth going, do that in the right and the controlled way. They're a good source of advice for that. And that keeps you both on the same target and path with the same goal in mind. I think a great answer, Ash. I'm going to ask it and I appreciate there's probably lots of advice that Alex has given you and, and there might not be one piece that sort of you recall, but I'm going to ask for it anyway. Is there any one or two, three, are there any big things that actually your discussions with Alex have really helped you focus on or any things he's shared with you that have really shifted how you and the, the leadership team are running the business? Or have- The main thing would be it's being confident in your own decisions and directions and seeking it's seeking advice really it's the yes so you use alex as a you know, maybe even the most important stakeholder of the business but it's using him for what he can offer has been the main thing really which is sort of the general guidance about the structure of the business and how he sees that against other organizations so it's an access to a bit of information you don't always can you know, can't always find as easily you get sort of caught up in your own world and he has a lens that looks from the outside in but he has more intimate knowledge of the people and how it's structured i suppose that was a bit of a vague answer but it was it was around maybe the main thing would be around the importance of structuring the leadership team in the right way i mean that's his main points of engagement so that's the area that he would observe the most and then when you test your sort of directional ideas on strategy, you're getting that sort of investment lens, which is, will it be worth more by doing this at the end? And that's actually now I think about it and I've rambled on on two or three different trajectories. That would be the main bit really, which is if we make these strategic choices, will the business be worth more at the end or would it just be bigger? And actually he brings that view that says, yeah, I can see the story that's emerging, which will ultimately make the investment worth more. And that's, that's been really useful. I think Hark's Back, there's a, another popular book. I don't actually think it's been recommended too often on this show, but it's, it's quite a tech-focused one, Built to Sell, where actually you, the, the whole premise is if, if you build a business to sell, you will run a good business. And almost the kind of, it's the same argument the other way around, but you know, to what we were saying about good to great, you know, you mentioned around that continued growth, that that's growth in terms of that was measured in stock market price. So it's exactly that same philosophy, isn't it? Of what is it that will add value to the business, not just make it bigger or bloat it. That's exactly right. And it's it's hard well, it's important not to get too fixed on the sale moment. A, we don't know when it is. And it doesn't matter, right? It's just a step along the way in the journey of Inlumi. That's all it is. It's not designed to be anything else. It's not an end moment. It's it's at best a chapter. And that, that's all it is really. And it's the you're designing a company to go on into the future and keep growing in the best way you can make it in this sort of cohesive joined up way and understanding what your North Star is and what you want to be famous for, known for, really good at, your your hedgehog, what's your one thing you're the best at that you enjoy doing and can make money at. And Alex and Nimbus are, are a step along that way. And that's it's a really important part of the journey, but it's only a step. It's not an end point. It's just you know, a chapter in the history of Inlumi. I think a really great point, Ash. And, and we've talked about advice. And I, I think for the final part of today's conversation, I actually want to turn to someone else who I, I know is giving you a bit of advice and, and supporting you. And that is is our friend, David Lancefield, who has been a guest on this show many moons ago. Um, I was looking back actually, it was I think episode 27, which is a long old time ago. And obviously since gone on to build his uh, coaching business and strategy business and doing some great things with his own show as well. Um, <laughs> yes. And maybe to start us off, I just... 
I'd I'd love to understand how that I guess coaching relationship came about, and yeah, what led to that conversation, and ultimately led to you saying yes, David. You know, would love to to do some coaching with you. Yeah, so it started actually with strategy. So there were two major things happening in 2021, and that was the change in ownership. We were going to be PE backed and structure ourselves differently, which is the second thing, as two business units, you know, a global managed services and a global consulting business rather than country by country. So those two big events coming together and then signaling the start of a next chapter, if you like, the close of one and the beginnings of another. And we wanted to make that a big moment. We wanted to do it in the right way. We wanted to bring as many of the people in the organization, if not everyone, along the journey with us at the same pace and have their contribution. And in the same way as the culture work, which came later, so the secret source work we did, uh, which David also contributed to, it started with strategy. And that's where I first contacted David was to help us with the strategy of the organization to run a process with us. Again, following what we do, which is offer advice. We sought advice when it came to this really big and important subject. And David approaches these things in a very real way. It's not theatre. It's, it's an active, real process that people participate in. And I was confident, I didn't know how he was going to do it, but I knew he would find a way to structure it that involved the organisation. So it's really hard, isn't it? You kind of want a small number of people in a room for a longer period of time to come up with an answer. But that's just an answer no one else believes in, and that's not going to help. So you have to do it in a way that's more inclusive, that brings in more data points internal and external and across the organization and still coming out with something sort of simple, cohesive and can work. So that, that's where it began really, which was help us with one of the things he, he has done the most of in his career, which is you know, advice and strategy. And what then made you, I guess, continue that relationship on, on more of a kind of a CEO executive coaching level? Because in, in some ways, like you say, you know, you've done the strategy that is David's forte is brilliant at that. But I would be interested, what for you made having a coach the right thing because you you know you're running a 250 person business you're busy you've got home life family life you've got clients you have to make a conscious or have had to make a conscious decision to build this into your your life into your days what was it that led you to say yes actually this is something that for me as the ceo this is the right thing to do it was actually a very natural choice as i said it started with a request for some support to help us shape the strategy of the business once we began that relationship, and, and it's a two-way street, right? It's um, that the coach needs to want to work with you as much as you want to work with a coach. That's because it's a relationship and it's got to work for, for both parties and both need to get something out of it. And if you get that right, then the relationship's going to be much more beneficial and fruitful for everyone. So it was very natural. Well, it felt very natural for me anyway. We went through the strategy work. And then when we were talking about, well, how we, well, I wanted to carry on the relationship and uh, hopefully that was, well, it was reciprocated with David. And then it was like, what's the best way to do that? And actually his point was, what better way to continue to serve the organization than to help you land in the best way you can in your role as a new CEO. So when actually we began our relationship, I hadn't taken on that role. It was, we were moving towards it, but it hadn't happened. So then when we were talking about how, because we got a lot out of it, how best can we continue the relationship? Yeah, that was his advice really, which is why not focus there and we focus our coaching on how you can best contribute to the organization. That's the thing that's going to have the most direct and beneficial impact. 
And that's really interesting to know as well, because I think that point in time is quite important. And maybe I, I ask this as advice for our listeners, for, for anyone who they might be coming into a CEO role, managing partner role, but yeah, it could be the level below, the level below that. Almost what have those benefits of having that relationship with David, that coaching relationship been? And almost for anyone thinking about this sort of, why would it be a good thing for them to do too? The blend of how he approaches the role I think is the thing that's given me the most benefit and has provoked the most change and development and you know, source of inspiration. So it's a mix of strategist, catalyst and, and coach that comes together. And it's with a person that understands your business at a conceptual level and a little bit below. And the way he approaches it, he's not telling you what to do. He will answer and give direct advice and an opinion and he won't shy away from doing that. And that's really good. But you never feel like you've lost control over the choices and the decisions. What he's providing more than anything is an environment and a set of stimulus to be able to go and think differently about your role. And that's been the most educational and developmental part for me is the injections of those ideas, areas, thoughts, stimulus, thought leadership, articles, that's how the, each session feels very fresh and very new and has a new set of ideas, but all of it ties to what's going on in the business at that time. So I share a bit of how it's evolving and developing and it's going pretty fast um, in terms of changes. It's not just the growth, it's also the, the changes of the makeup of the organization as well. So there are so many different areas that you know, I need to get my head around and need help with, and it's not a job I've done before. So it seems perfectly natural that I should seek and need advice to do it. No, I, I think that's a great point, Ash. And it's, you probably heard the cliche as well before that sort of being a CEO is a lonely place. And actually, as you say, having, having someone who, who can advise you, bounce ideas off, be that catalyst, it sounds like it's been very powerful for you. Yeah, because you get the, there are people in the organization you're going to be closer to than others just because of proximity of relationship, history of working together, friendship, that type of thing. But you need someone that's a bit detached from all of that, but understands it as well. And how else and where else would you find it if not there? And this, a bit like when we were talking about your your actual move to Illumin, I asked this again, just sort of thinking of people who may be listening. You've made it sound like an obvious decision and one that has worked very well for you. What would your advice be for anyone who might be on the fence, who actually you know, is concerned that, well, I'm the CEO, if I have a coach, will people think I'm not a good enough CEO? You know, For anyone listening who may be on that fence, is there anything you'd sort of add or share with them? I think that's actually quite a simple one. So you can perceive it as being a selfish indulgence that's creating more personal development for yourself. But the reality is it's about increasing and enhancing and amplifying your impact in the organization, which is going to have a far greater return than what you're feeling and gaining from personally. So it's not a personal indulgence. It's something that helps power the organization in a different way. That's, that's what you're getting from it. So it has a direct correlation to the performance of the business. I think it's a great point, Ash. So thank you. And we're turning now to the last two questions that I ask every guest. And I know you've listened to a few episodes, so you've, you've, you've probably expected me to ask these. So the, the first one is about books. And again, as you'll know, I'll keep it short. What is the book or books you, you've either gifted the most or have had the most impact on you? Yeah, I, I, was, I was looking forward very much to this question. And there is a huge list I could have given. And there is definitely recommendations I've heard on your podcast, which I've absolutely loved and adored. 
So I was looking forward to my chance of doing the same. The first one is Let My People Go Surfing. So it's the Patagonia story of on Shwina. It was recommended by by Sue that works with us. She was um, one of the first people that joined the organization. And she said, Ash, and to everyone else that's here, you've got to read this book. It's amazing. And that's the one that's sort of traveled around the most inside our organization. It's brilliant. It was, you know, the essence of it really is you can have a business that grows really well and does all of the right things and contributes more than it takes away. So that was the first and perfect one that allowed us to sort of guide how we thought about the organization. And if we could get a fragment of what they do, we'll be on the right path for sure. The other one, or the next one, I really enjoyed this one. It's called Alchemy and it's by Rory Sutherland. So what it's talking about is we think people make rational choices, but often they're they're irrational. So a lot of, well, one of the stories they talk about is, is Red Bull. So it's a taste that most people don't like. And when they did the focus groups for Red Bull before they launched it, people were like, why are you even asking me to taste this thing? It's it's so horrible. I don't even know why I'm here. They were angry about it. That's that's how little they liked the drink. Yet we know the, the, the giant and the monolith and the organization that it's become. So there was lots, there was tons of these anecdotes in where something that just seemed completely irrational was actually the right and best thing to do. And there was a ton of little stories and nuggets that came from it. I just found fascinating. And my last one that I really enjoyed was uh, is the guy that ran around, sorry, that swam around Great Britain. So Ross Edgeley. And uh, the book's called The Art of Resilience. And he talks a, a lot about the resilience and he needed an enormous amount of it to make it on that huge swim, which is well over a thousand miles. It was like, actually, I've got it written down here. So it was, um, yeah, 1,780 miles, 157 days of straight swimming. And it, it's it's an amazing book and it talks a huge amount to resilience, but it's going on that journey with him and the adversity that he found every single swim virtually was just amazing story to hear. And uh, whether it's through jellyfish, his tongue disintegrating, not the end of the swim, but on like the second day or something, and then still pressing on for you know, an enormous distance and days thereafter. And then the, the best bits were just how much he ate. It was just an app. It was like six Cornish pasties for breakfast or something like that. It was, that was probably understated. Well, I think three fantastic and quite different recommendations there, Ash. And um, funnily enough, I, I haven't read the book, but my wife and I followed Ross Edgeley round that exact swim. He had a YouTube series, so for, for yourself, but for anyone listening, because I've had some guests who books aren't their things, but YouTubes and podcasts are. The the book I hit, you know, the fact you've recommended it says it is good. But if you want to also watch the journey on his YouTube, there is day week by week. So my maths fails me, but let's say 20 episodes where you can follow him around. And like you say, seeing someone's tongue fall off or jellyfish hit them in the face, it's quite a, uh, <laughs> the resilience is right. And I, and I think, you know, to everything we've talked about and, and that book as well, it, it shows you what humans can do. Oh, it's, I mean, well, I will definitely watch the YouTube thing now you've mentioned it. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It's beyond belief what he achieved and did and yeah, incredible. Oh, definitely. Well, and the last question, and again, this is one I'm sure you're expecting. So I will I will say it quickly so that you can share your thoughts. You have three people in front of you and, and kind of using PwC parlance for ease. So you've got one analyst, you know, they've just started at PwC, fresh out of university. You've got someone, I need to stick on a set of years, but say manager level, you know, they're kind of somewhere between four to seven years in their career. They've, they've got enough experience to have choices, but they're not at that senior end yet. And you've got one who is approaching either partner or, you know, someone who's 
in the shoes you were in, you know, they're, they're going out to launch a business unit or their own business. And the simple question is, is what one piece of advice would you give to each? Yeah, I love this one too. I would not differentiate, I think, too much in grade, actually. I think it would be a very similar bit of advice I'd provide for all of them. So if I was to give three bits, given I've got three grades, Please, go for it. One. There's, I mentioned it earlier, you know, the network is the thing that pays you back. So invest in those relationships. It's kind of a core of consulting anyway, but that's the, the single and most important thing. And it applies to all of those levels, really. You, you will be paid back again and again and again by investing in time in those relationships for the difficult times as well as the good times. That's super important. The other one is around is growth and learning. So, and again, I, I wouldn't differentiate between the grades really. It's just, you have to always be open, you know, as am I, as I always was, and as hopefully are everyone else as well. It is the, the growth and development journey that you're all on and it doesn't stop and it shouldn't stop and you, you don't ever reach a point where it isn't important and you can't benefit from feedback or adjustments in style and behaviours. And if for me now, they come as thick and fast as they did from the beginning of my career. And the last one I would talk about then is Maybe the word is persistence, really. A lot of it's not giving up, always be willing to have a go. And what you're really trying to do there is build trust. And it's one of the things that keeps everything working in a consulting business because there are difficult days as well as there are easy days. And it's about how people show up on the difficult days. So it's not wrong to ask for help. In fact, you definitely should. And everyone will always be willing to. But it's about not giving up and being persistent in what you're trying to do and resourceful to try and make it work or make it happen. I think that was that would be the the three things I would say. Fantastic. Well, I think three great pieces of advice and a really nice place to, to end us, Ash. So thank you for this. I've really enjoyed it. It has uh, delivered on, it has exceeded my expectations. So thank you. And, and obviously, thank you to John and David for introducing us. Last thing to ask, obviously, if anyone does want to find out more about you, get in touch. They want to find out more about Inlumi. Where would you point them to? Yeah, so for myself personally, LinkedIn or email, we can give both. For Inlumi, again, you can see the type of things we post by following us on LinkedIn. And then our website will describe a bit more detail about who we are and what we do. Amazing, Ash. Well, we'll put all of those in the show notes. And all that's left to say is thank you and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and I've really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thank you, Ash. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.